the country with your host, Dave Woods. This is the radio show where country music gets up close and personal. Spend some time in the country and get to know our guests. Spend some time in the country where the music's the best. The latest news and memories to great stories that get told. Spend some time in the country, now it's time we start the show. My pleasure to welcome to In the Country Now hit songwriter Byron Hill. He's been at it since 1978, and the list of hit songs goes on and on, and we'll get into those songs on the show from artists like Alabama, Gary Allen, George Strait, George's first number one hit, in fact, written by Byron Hill. Uh, Canadian songs from Gil Grand, Gord Bamford. Uh, the list goes on and on. Again, we'll get to, into more depth on the show. My pleasure now to welcome Byron Hill. Welcome, Byron. Hey, thank you, Dave. Uh, great to be on here. Uh, I've heard about your show for years, and I'm thrilled that, uh, to be a guest. Well, thank you so much. It is a, is a great thrill to have you on. And uh, first of all, a big shout-out to Gil Grand and Melissa, who connected us. And uh, I, I'm so thankful that uh, they put us in touch for the interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I've known both of them for a long time, and, and um, you know, we're where they they uh they said uh, would you be interested in doing this and i said absolutely put me on with dave i'd love it oh that's awesome well i know all these songs i mean i didn't really have to go back and listen although of course i did but i knew these songs because so many of the songs you've written byron are my favorites alabama my favorite country group so born country of course i love we got george Strait with fool-hearted memory uh, a sammy kershaw song politics religion and her which is a beautiful song i mean Again, the list could go on and on. Let's go back to the beginning. We'll get into some of the songs in depth, but 78, the year 1978, uh, it says when you were a professional Nashville songwriter. How, how much how much longer before that did you start writing, Byron? Well, I, I started writing songs uh, when I was about 16, and I moved to Nashville when I was 24, so I'm giving away my age there. But, <laughs> but I... Uh, you know, I started writing when I was 16, and I I started getting an idea that this is what I wanted to do. You know, uh, when I went off to college, I was uh, playing music at a place called Appalachian State University when I was uh, 17, 18, 19, and I, I really kind of knew that uh, knew that I I, um, I wasn't going to be very good at anything else. So <laughs> I needed to, I needed to really. Uh, study the fine print on the records and learn learn about the business. So I started coming down to Nashville when I was uh, 23, 24 years old, and that was that was in about uh, that was in 1975, 76. I was making exploratory trips to Nashville every time I would get a, a couple hundred bucks. I would try to make the trek down to Nashville and visit publishers and uh, make the rounds. And so. Um, you know, just uh, by uh, the end of 1977, I was offered a tape copy job, which was sort of an entry-level position uh, in the business. Still is. We call it tape copy, but, you know, there's no tape anymore. But uh, <laughs> but back then, everything was on reel-to-reel tapes. And, and so I uh, landed a job working for a publishing company in the tape room. And uh, it was a great place to start because I was listening to fantastic 
songs, uh, you know, uh, great writers that would come in every day that were having hits at the time. And so uh, I moved here in seven, I moved to Nashville in 78 and started that job and ended up staying at that publishing company as a staff writer. I ended up signing in September of 78 and stayed there until 84. So that was really my earliest beginnings in Nashville. And I've, I've been with some sort of publisher ever since, you know, some small, some large. Um, and uh, that's how it all started, really, were those exploratory trips to town. Take us back to, uh, this would have been 82 is when the song came out for George Strait, obviously written before that. Foolhardy right. Memory, it became George's first number one song. And your first number one as a songwriter, of course, George has gone on to become a legend. That was earlier in his career. Take us back to the writing of the song, Byron, and sure. when you heard that George Strait was going to cut it, of course, was his name as as known at that point at, at the time he was recording it to you? No, uh, he was a fairly new artist on MCA Records at the time, and um, what they did was uh, they were looking to get him to the next level. He had had a couple of singles out. Uh, that um, uh, had done okay. You know, they had kind of raised the awareness of, of, of George and who he was, but he he was by no means a household word yet, and uh, he was just getting on his feet. And the publishing company that I wrote for had some connections, and they were hoping to get George into sort of the typical bar scene of the, you know, in a movie just to get him some exposure, get, you know, get maybe get a single or a song on the soundtrack album and um so they connected me with a young guy that was producing George at the time a guy named Blake Mevis who was not really on the map yet as a you know very big himself so you know we got together and uh, the mission was to come up with a song that day that would uh make the movie uh would fit the scene in the movie would mm -hmm. uh, potentially be a single and, and make the soundtrack album and make George's album and and that's what we did, we sat down and wrote our very first song together as co-writers and ended up being uh, uh, George's first number one and my first number one as a songwriter. And I just, you know, it, it's 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 one of the reasons I still do what I do every day. You just never know what's going to happen, you know. And it was uh, I was in the right place at the right time. And we wrote the song in a house that's still there on Music Row, a place, uh, it's uh, 1217, uh, 16th Avenue South, a little upstairs room. We wrote it there, and um, it um, ended up uh, being a big old hit for George. And we wrote it in 81, and it was the number one uh, hit uh, in 1982, in August of 82. And uh, it's been a long time, <laughs> but we're, we're all still here. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that, that's amazing, that that, uh, that number one hit for George Strait. 1982, and, and you mentioned, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with the song. That must be part of the fun, and part of what keeps it interesting, too, is you don't know the song you've written as good as you know it is and as great as the song might be, whose hands it is going to get into and what they're going to do with the song. Have you had songs over the years, Byron, that you thought were good, but an artist has recorded it and taken it to a whole other level? Oh, yeah, I think, you know, I think... Um... Alabama is born country. I mean, I knew the song was great. Uh, it was a really good song. I mean, I mean, I, I knew that it potentially could get cut by someone. Uh, uh, 
when we wrote that song, Joe Diffie sang the demo, and Joe Diffie at the time was sort of a, a real busy demo singer around town. He was getting a lot of work as a singer and, and get starting to get some attention. And so uh, I, we had hired Joe to sing the demo, and Joe was one of those singers that when you hired him to sing something, it was done in 10 minutes, you know. I mean, he could nail he nailed it. And so, um, you know, we uh, uh, the publisher had worn out that song, kind of pitching it around town. Couldn't couldn't really get much going on it. Um, some interest, but not much. And then um, one day, I was in a, I was writing on Music Row, and my co-writer looked out the window one day. A guy that I was writing with, he said, "Hey, there's Teddy Gentry walking by, from, <laughs> you know, from the from the band Alabama." So I right. just happened to have a copy of that song and I ran out, uh, ran down to my car, ran out into the street and uh, gave it to Teddy right there, gave it to him on a cassette (laughs) and I asked him if he would listen to it. And that was, you know, to get back to your question, that was a song that I knew was good and the the demo was certainly good, but it was nothing like the record as far as the, as far as the, um, the commercial, a thing that they did to it. I mean, they just sort of took it to the next level. I mean, they didn't change the words, didn't change the melody, but but the uh, ar- arrangement and the uh, power in that record uh, was just uh, took it to a complete new level. It was just a, a good, solid country demo before that, but uh, when we heard the Alabama thing, I nearly fell out of my chair. I just knew, wow. And so... Um, you know that that was a great example of something that uh, addresses your question. That was a song that I just uh, that was a recording that just really took the song to a complete different level. Another song that went to number one that's Born Country, Alabama, back in 1992, and that's a cool story about pitching it to Teddy Gentry, seeing him out the window and and approaching him. You know, we hear all the time about songs getting pitched, and I guess the conventional way might be through a publisher and, and a formal process. But have you had other occasions like that situation with Teddy where you've walked up to someone or maybe you've performed the song at a, a songwriter circle? Just some unusual pitches over the years, Byron? You know, I, I can't uh, I can't recall any any of them being quite like that story. That was a that was. Uh, <laughs> Just uh, one that, uh, yeah, that's, that's a good story. But I, uh, you know, I've, I've um, so you know, songs get heard through sort of happenstance and just happen all kinds of weird ways. Um, mm-hmm. um, Johnny Lee's picking up strangers uh, was well, it's, it, he didn't really pick the song up um, uh, through a pitch, but I had written that song for a, a movie script and. It, that he was going to be singing some, he hadn't chosen the song yet to sing. And I was given an assignment to try to write something for a script. And, and we, uh, it was, I had to get it out to Johnny, you know, to the, or to the producer who was Jim Ed Norman. Uh, I had to get it out to him overnight. And um, so I wrote the song at night, put it on the plane the next day. Uh, it, they took it out to LA and next thing I know that one that one got cut that way I, and I think I really think that song was cut because they maybe didn't have anything else <laughs> you know, it was one of those things that just happened again in the right place at the right time it wasn't me so much in the right place at the right time but the song was you know the song I, uh, you know it, it happened to come in that day and they needed it and they cut it and everything sort of fell into place and uh, so, I don't know, it's funny how some of these things happen. 
I'm sure as good as and great, obviously, as the songs you write, do you have that confidence every time that in that sense that, man, this is going to cut for sure, and maybe others you think this will probably get cut, but maybe it's going to take a bit of time? I think um, in the 90s and 80s uh, and early 2000s, you really had a pretty good feeling about a song when you wrote it that this, you know, this, this has got a really good shot. It's really going to happen. It's not so much that way now because so many artists are writing. There's, uh, I, I think, really the song is not, um, and it's not always the important element these days in a hit. It's a lot of times it's the record, it's the production, and things that um, that they're looking for that um, you know really don't have as much to do with the the strength of the song these days and. It's just the it's just the way, like it or not, it's just the way the business is now. Uh, but uh, but then I believe uh, you know tw- twenty years ago, ten years ago, you could come up with something that was really really strong, and you knew that it had a had a had a great shot. Now you know, like all writers here in town, I wrote a lot, and I still do. I write a lot of songs, and so I, I don't expect everything I write to see the light of day, and certainly. Uh, um, very few do, but um, but you know there's a there is an interesting story about how songs surface uh, on the Ann Murray cut, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you want me to tell that story now. I, I can. I'd love you to. Yeah, we're, we're going to be playing the, your version of the song a bit later, but uh, Ann Murray's song called "Over You," which is such a beautiful song. Yeah, please do tell that story, Byron. Well, the Anne Murray uh, cut was interesting because it was originally cut around 1985, uh, 86, somewhere in there. Uh, David Foster had produced um, the song, and they had brought in another producer. I've forgotten his name, but another producer came in with a different group of songs. And so this the album that they were working on about 1985, 86, uh, ended up being sort of co-produced and um, songs were being brought in uh, from two different sources or may- maybe more. And so Over You got bumped off the album. And I had never heard the cut. I just sort of wrote it off and assumed, well, there we go. We lost we lost an Anne Murray cut and we'll probably never hear from that again. And then I was at I was at the CCMA Awards in Calgary. Back when, uh, back about 1996, I was there uh, with Gil Grand because we were Gil was nominated uh, for something at that year, and and I was um, at the awards ceremony uh, in downtown Calgary, mm-hmm. and we um, uh, this girl comes up to me. I remember uh, she said she introduced herself and she said she was from Ann Murray's office, and this is. Now this is ten years after Anne had cut the song, and this girl comes up to me and she yep. says, "Did you know that your song is going to be on Anne's next album?" And I said, "You're kidding!" After ten years, <laughs> did this song, <laughs> and she said, "She said yes." Um, Anne somehow, you know, wanted to bring that song back out and finish it and get it, get it, get it all uh, tidied up for the album, and so they. Uh, uh, David Foster went in and and uh, cut a few more things, you know, to add or added a few more tracks to the song, whatever. I think it was a gut string a guitar part or something that he added, and and they cleaned it up and put it on her uh, gra- 
greatest hits album, which was um, uh, ended up uh, doing quite well up there for her. Uh, ten years after it was originally recorded, so uh, that was, you know, quite a quite a thrill. So and that, you, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say the journey of a song, right there. You know, ten years, you don't imagine anything's going to happen, and then out of the blue, you get that news. I know it was it was just uh, such a thrill, and my co-writer on that song is from uh, London, and so I, that was one of the the most uh, fun phone calls I made to him to deliver the the news to him. And the album <laughs> Anne's album that that is on uh, is called The Best So Far, um, and that was on EMI. Came out in 1997. That's an amazing song, and Byron, I'd love to turn now to your version of that song, because you've got a great CD out. Uh, people can check it out at either iTunes or byronhillmusic.com. Uh, and it's the CD is called Byron Hill Radio Songs. You do 14 songs that you had success with as a songwriter, including Foolhearted Memory, that number one huge hit for George Strait. Uh, you do your version of Born Country on there, uh, Politics, Religion, and Her. And you do the Anne Murray song, Over You. So uh, if you'd like Byron right now, I'd love to share that, that song with our listeners. They'll also get to hear your voice, which is a, you've got a great voice. So a lot of songwriters oh, do, but not all. Some are you know, a songwriter first, but uh, you've got a great voice. Thank you very much, Dave. I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I use it on demos mainly, and, uh, but, I, but I put out a few CDs, and I sell them at little uh, songwriter shows that I do, and it's, it's, uh, it's a nice thing to be able to do that. Awesome. Well, let's share the song now. This is Byron Hill with Over You on In the Country. I never will be over you I have tried but it's so hard to do I'm surrounded by the memories no I never will be over you time goes by and I'm still change your mind again I will greet you like a long lost friend in my heart we've never reached the end and I never will be over you I never will be over you. 
Life's like walking down a lonely street I see you in everyone I meet How I long to see your smiling face Oh, my love for you And I never will be And that is hit songwriter Byron Hill with a song he wrote that Ann Murray recorded, a beautiful song called Over You. Uh, be sure to visit Byron at ByronHillMusic.com. You'll see a list of all those songs that he's written, far too many to mention and get into on the show. You'll see them there. It's just a terrific list. I mean, over 700 recordings, artists like Ray Charles, Conway Twitty, Sammy Kershaw. We mentioned Alabama, Brooks and Dunn, Reba, Barbara Mandrell, and even George Jones. And I know every songwriter wanted a George Jones cut, and you had one with a, with a cool song called High Tech Redneck. That was a fun song. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I get a lot of requests to do that in my songwriter shows. And, uh, uh, yeah, I wrote that with a guy named Zach Turner, and Zach and I kind of got on a roll there writing. And uh, we just, uh, it was it was actually uh, Zach's idea that day, and we sat down in my kitchen and wrote, a, wrote it, and, um, uh, I remember when the song plugger from uh, MCA Music, uh, it was actually the pluggers were Lynn Gann and Mike Sebastian. When they played it for um, uh, George Jones, uh, uh, they <laughs> they told me that George said uh, was asking about the writers, and he said, "Were they drinking?" <laughs> you know, and just I guess he was. He thought uh, the idea was kind of weird, you know, and, and uh, asked if we had been drinking when we wrote the song. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny, but that's hilarious, but, um, especially coming from George. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that is uh, funny. What? It's such a it's such a novelty song. I mean, it's just it's a fun song, and he did a lot of those type of songs as well, so it kind of fit in. And that was later on in his career when that one came out. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, just to get on. On, on a George Jones cut was just a thrill for me because I've been listening to him all my career and always wanted to get a George Jones cut. And later on, we uh, George started this uh, this thing called the George Jones University. Uh, I don't know. It didn't. I don't think it lasted too long, but I believe it was for a couple of years there. And he he would uh, sort of um, he brought in some people to teach uh, young up and coming artists uh, the craft of singing and performing and. And so uh, my my co-writer friend and I we we came up with a we we donated some money to the George Jones University and called it High Tech Redneck Scholarship. <laughs> so, I, so we we donated a couple of hundred dollars I think to sponsor a couple of students at the George Jones University. <laughs> that is too funny. So, wow, yeah. that's amazing! What an honor a George Jones cat. I wanted to talk uh, specifically about the skill of songwriting, Byron, because a lot of people who listen to this show are, 
are uh, some of them are established artists, of course. Some of them are brand new on the scene, and they might be a songwriter specifically as well, as opposed to an artist. But but on the songwriting side of things, can you pass on a couple of tips? A perfect person to do that. Things that maybe somebody new at songwriting uh, might not know about, or maybe common mistakes they make. And if they, you know, learned not to do that, their songs would get better. Well, there's two two tips that I always like to give people. One is, of course, to always have your antenna out and always be uh, writing down every idea that you get, every title. You don't have to finish it immediately. Uh, but, you know, if you can write down titles and always have your antenna out for ideas and don't let it slip by uh, before you write it down or put it on your phone or whatever you, however you want to take your notes. Uh, you know, around my house, I've got notepads everywhere. I, I, I keep a pen and paper by the bed. I keep one in the kitchen. I keep one in, you right. know, everywhere I'm at in my car. And, of course, the cell phone is good for that, too. You've got memo memo apps, things of that nature in the cell phone and voice uh, voice recording apps these days. And I use that a lot to put down a little groove or an idea in my head while I'm driving or, <laughs> or maybe while I'm just sitting around. Whenever I can't, whenever I can't uh, write something, I just like to, to put it down some way and then I'll come back to it later. So right. that's, that's tip number one that's always worked for me through the years. You don't let those ideas go by. Always be ready for them. Write them down. Um, the other thing is, you know, that this is one of my tricks that I use a lot. Like, uh, you know, I came up through a period of time in songwriting when a lot of times the first-person character in a song, um, like, um, let's just say as an example, um, you, know, you know, Merle Haggard's, you know, uh, you know the, the lyric, you know, I, I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. Well, Artists mm-hmm. these days don't don't sing that. You know, they don't sing first person character things so much anymore. Where they paint themselves as some sort of a of a ruffian or an unusual character like that. They just don't mm-hmm. do it. It, it was po- it was popular years ago uh, for a country artist to actually be that person in the song. And so, you know, a lot of times you you want to sing a song about, uh, or write, you want to write a song about being, um, you know, having some sort of character fault or flaw or being vulnerable or being, uh, having a problem in your life. Well, you know, I tell writers that they can kind of get around that these days by making a third person, you know, where you're singing about someone else, not yourself. And all right. of a sudden, it cha- all of a sudden, the pitch opportunities change on that song because you know you don't have to find that one artist out there that will sing about uh, about that subject. It'll all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it'll uh, any artist could sing it. A great example for that that I didn't when I, I didn't use this trick on, but uh, but thank goodness found the right artist to do it was a song I wrote with a guy named J.B. Rudd, we wrote a song called If I Was a Drinking Man that mm-hmm. uh, Neil McCoy... Neil McCoy, that Neil, yeah. Neil McCoy had the guts to put that out. And I, and, and still today, I, I look back and I go, my gosh, how did we ever find Neil McCoy, someone <laughs> who was willing to say that, you know? Mm-hmm. Because it's basically a song about a guy admitting that he had a drinking problem. And artists just aren't going to do that these days. They're just not going to put themselves in that... So, um, you know, uh, so, you know, you might take an idea like that and, and change it around the third person some way so that the 
So any artist can do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're telling a story about another character, another person, and it's not about them. It's something they're observing. Yeah, if he, yeah it could have yeah. been if he was a drinking man like he used mm-hmm. to be. He'd get himself a bottle and you'd be history. You know, the lyrics could be changed that way. And sure. that way anyone could sing it. Tim McGraw could sing it. Kenny Rogers could sing it. You know, anyone, Brett Eldridge, anyone could sing it. But, but, uh, but you know, uh, so that's just one of those little tricks that I've learned through the years as a writer to do to kind of broaden the pitch. Uh, and I'll go ahead and tell you another thing, too. Whenever you cannot... Whenever whenever you can ungenderize a song, you know, like if during the writing process, I do this a lot because I hate to get too locked into a song being right for a female or a male. If there's a way that you can make the lyric uh, fit either or, it's always a mm-hmm. good moment to do that when you're writing because you you know you double your pitch opportunities for right. the song. Right. You know, yep. half the market. You know, so just a little. Thing. That makes yeah. That makes a lot of sense, Byron. Uh, again, our listeners can head to byronhillmusic.com. Great songwriting advice. And we got we got a couple more great songs to play on the way. I want to turn to your Canadian connection, including a songwriting workshop coming up in June, which we'll get to in a few moments. But uh, some of the Canadians that you've worked with, Gord Bamford, country artist, of course, you've had a, a long list of hits that you've written with him. Uh, just oh, yeah. amazing on the radio all the time. Is it Friday yet? Just to name one of them, tell me about working with Gord. Well, we uh, started working together about uh, 2004, I believe is about when we started writing. And we uh, uh, just hit it off, you know, right away. He came in my office when I was a staff writer at Warner Chapel, and he um, really wanted me to do something with him. He he was just so endearing, you know, uh, and he... Just, I hate to use the word begged. That, that he didn't really beg me to work with, him. <laughs> but he he really wanted me to. He just really tried to to get get my attention, and and he really did so just being pure gourd, you know, just a good guy. And he had already recorded one of my songs called uh, God's Green Earth on on an album, and he uh, he looked me up and and asked me if I would write with him. So we started writing about 2004. And, you know, one thing just kind of led to another. We wrote a lot of songs uh, during that time, and for about every time he would come to town, we'd write a little bit, and then he asked me if I would uh, produce his album. So I produced his uh, Life is Good album that came out in 2004, and we had quite a few cuts on that that uh, did well for him. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we um, uh, went on after that in 2007, uh, you know, we'd written more, and we did his Honky Tonks and Heartaches album together, and that had uh, that's when he really started hitting it with uh, songs like Blame It on That Red Dress, um, Drinking Buddy, uh, Postcard yeah. from Pasadena, Stayed Till Two. Oh, yeah. and, uh, I mean, we it really started taking off for Gord uh, on that album, and we just kept going. <laughs> just, you know, Gord just Gord just became part of part of uh, one of my you know one of my writing pals and we would get together whenever he would come to town and of course I was still writing here and you know with everyone else I mean all the other friends I had and getting cuts here at the time but uh and now and then we'd sit down and try to crank out a few songs for his next album and that it just kept going we did the day job album and 
in, that came out in 2010. And um, and then on to the Is It Friday Yet in 2012. And then the next album was the Country Junkie album in 2013. So it just was a, a friendship that, that lasted through a lot of songs there. And we had a, a lot of success together. And when people ask me about the Canadian connection, I really owe a lot of that to my early days at ATV Music because ATV Music was an international company the same company that I mentioned earlier that I was uh, started out with right talk again that company was so international that I got to meet people from all over and uh, other offices and one uh, of the key guys that I met was a man named Frank Davies from Toronto who is still in the business uh and Frank Davies ran the uh, ATV, the Toronto office, and so uh, through Frank, I met quite a few Canadians, and um, and even indirectly, uh, I met Gord through Frank's wife Linda. So you know, that's it's just been, I've always had kind of a broad, broad interest in producing acts that are good from wherever they're from, and writing with people from wherever they're from. They could be from Norway or Canada or Australia. <laughs> It's it's all music, you know, and it's yep. uh, all talented people, and 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 if it's fun, I want to do it, you know. So that's amazing, Byron. Well, let's take a moment to uh, play that George Strait song we talked about earlier, and then we're going to come back and talk about Gil Grand and a very special song that you are involved with that uh, he has out now at Canadian Country Radio, and the two of you have reunited. Uh, let's turn to that song. The first number one song for you as a songwriter, and the first number one. For George Strait back in 1982, this is Foolhearted Memory on In the Country. Nickels and dimes, memories and wine, she's on his mind once again. The same old stew. The same old fool Played by the rules But didn't win There's an old love In his heart That he can't lose He tried forgetting But he knows That it's no use He's got a fool-hearted memory It won't let him see That she walked out the door He's got a fool Patiently Here every night So it can fool him more She was his girl His only world That string of pearls That slipped away A thousand dimes thousand times he doesn't mind what they say he fills a jukebox then plays the same old song he fills his glass and then he turns her memory on but it's a full-hearted memory it won't let him see that she walked out the door he's got a full 
Jesus patiently here every night so it can fool him more. He's got a full-hearted memory. It won't let him see that she walked out the door. He's got a full-hearted memory. He sits patiently. And that is George Strait with Fool-Hearted Memory, a song co-written by my guest, Byron Hill. Be sure to check him out at byronhillmusic.com and also his albums at iTunes because he has his own albums out. In fact, one of the great ones is Byron Hill Radio Songs. Uh, that's really cool because you do them, they're acoustic, and it's songs, 14 tracks of songs that were hits for you know the artists that you uh, pitched them to and had them recorded by. Yeah, uh, I decided somewhere along the line I needed to do one of those albums, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, it uh, it really worked out well. It, I was kind of surprised how how people enjoyed just the acoustic approach on it because uh, it's basically me and another guitar player, and um, and it it just was a lot of fun to do it that way. And sonically, it, it's uh, you know we. I took a lot of special care to make it uh, sound good. So, you know, it's it's the perfect little uh, little writer album. It's awesome. People can check it out at iTunes and should definitely get that to listen to. Gil Grant, a great Canadian country artist, and you worked with him back in the late 90s. And now Gil has a song that he co-wrote with Jeffrey East called She'll Always Be Mine, which is a beautiful father-daughter wedding song. You've produced the song with Gil. Let's talk about, we'll get into the song, but talk about your relationship with Gil, because I know you guys started working together back uh, in the late 90s, and I think that was on Gil's first album. Yeah, that's right. Gil had been brought to me uh, by Frank Davies in in, uh, Toronto, Uh, but uh, Gil had uh, Come to Frank had introduced him to me, and we started writing together. Very, very similar to how I get involved with a lot of people. You start out by writing or whatever, and uh, that's always such a good, uh, such a good way to to uh, sort of decide if you can if you can even stand each other long enough to cut an album. You know, so we we just hit it off immediately and started writing, and we. the songs just started pouring out. I was at MCA music writing at the time, and and Gil came to town, spent some time here. We wrote, and then I uh, cut some demos on him, and took those demos around, and we were offered a deal, a really a, a great deal on uh, on Monument Records, which was um, the uh, Sony labels. Uh, they they had started up Monument Records as a label again, uh, and their first signing was the Dixie Chicks, and their second signing was uh, Gill. And so uh, they gave us uh, they gave us complete uh, control over the album, and you know we we sought their feedback, uh, you know, on it, and got a lot of uh, got a lot of uh, you know help on selecting which songs would make the album, but. Uh, that's what happened. They, it just all the doors opened up when they heard Gil. They loved him, and they thought he was uh, he was exactly what they needed. And so we were we were doing uh, out doing a radio launch on that album about the same time the Dixie Chicks were starting to take off. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they had a promotional staff at Monument that was you know could only handle so much that when the, once the Dixie Chicks took off, it was really 
uh, it was it just really took up everyone's resources. The Dixie Chicks just turned into a phenomenon, and so uh, so our our project was kind of uh, you know we were doing the best we could out there and and trying to make it happen. But I really think um, that's uh, the 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 great success that the Dixie Chicks had took some of the resources that we needed uh, to help Gil get get a foothold out there in the market. And uh, I remember we were doing a show in Edmonton uh, at Red's uh, out there at the uh, the big mall uh, in Edmonton, and it was us and the Dixie Chicks on the show. And it was almost at that time kind of a toss-up who was going to open for who <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> at these radio shows. And right. uh, But then, this, then it was like an overnight thing, um, and it was um, – it was a like a you know it just it just it was a phenomenon. I mean they took off and mm-hmm. and we were, we weren't traveling with the Dixie Chicks after that and they were out <laughs> on their own and uh, and it, and really uh, but we did have some success with uh, with Gil. We had more success in Canada than here. Uh, he had famous first words that was out in '98 and spilled mm-hmm. perfume in 1999 and I already fell and um, so it was a uh, you know, it made a mark for him, and I still talk to people now and then that uh, that album, uh, you know, people that have that album and radio still remember some of those songs for sure. So, um, you know, a lot of time went by, and Gil, would, Gil and I would get together and co-write uh, because we became really good friends back then, of course. And even when we didn't have anything to work on and the record deal was over, we would still get together and write songs. And I even cut... Uh, a song or two of Gill's on, on Gord Bamford's projects. And so, um, but Gill and I stayed in touch and, uh, he, he was always uh, spending a lot of time here in town. In fact, he, he really basically lived in Nashville. Um, even though his family and, uh, you know, all of his, uh, his parents and everything are up in Canada mm-hmm. and he's goes up there a lot. And I think his, his two kids are up around the Calgary area. Um, but, so time went by, and and then I I started you know here in this past year I've had some had some free time and we got back together again and and he played me this thing and asked if I could help him get it out as a single this uh, she'll always be mine that he wrote with Jeffrey East and and mm-hmm. the song just knocked me out I mean I heard the song and I went wow this is this is just Gil Grand you know just yeah. it's just got Gil Grand all over it I mean when yep. when people hear it, hear it uh, I think it'll they'll reflect on the Gil Grand that they've heard before and, and it will, it will be a connection for him and, and hopefully he'll, he'll get some tra- traction out there on radio with it. And uh, I think it's uh, already starting to do that. It's a beautiful song. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, Gil has a great country voice, sort of a George Strait style of voice, just that smooth sound. I've always been a fan of his love, uh, love his songs. And as you said, yeah, she'll always be mine. The sentiment in it, uh, for fathers and daughters is going to be uh, quite amazing. People are really going to be able to relate to this song. I agree. I agree. And being the father of a daughter myself, I uh, my daughter is uh, definitely old enough to be married, but she's not yet. And um, But I can imagine that this song is, is going to be played and um, there's going to be a lot of father-daughter dances to this song. It's just that kind of thing, and it, it's very poignant and beautiful. 
Well, it's great to hear brand new music from Gil Grant, and great to know, Byron, that you are connected to this song, co-producing it with him and putting that magic touch on it. A song that Gil co-wrote with Jeffrey East, and we're going to talk about all three of you in a moment in a big uh, songwriting workshop coming up uh, in the month of June in Ontario. Right now, this is Gil Grant. She'll always be mine on In the Country. Ontario country artist Gil Grand, that is brand new music called She'll Always Be Mine. You'll find that at iTunes. And that was uh, co-produced with my guest Byron Hill. Uh, Gil co-wrote it with Jeffrey East. Now all three of them, Gil, Jeffrey, 
and Byron are going to be part of the first annual Calabogie Peaks Songwriters Workshop. And Calabogie, Ontario is near Ottawa. Uh, you can learn more about it at byronhillmusic.com. June 27th through the 29th. Uh, tell me a bit about it, uh, Byron. You're going to have a chance to pass on your songwriting knowledge to, uh, to people who attend this. Yeah, that's right. We're going to uh Gil recruited me into this and I'm I'm very happy to be a part of it and uh it's going to be uh 3 days of of uh various things, uh little small morning and afternoon workshops and uh and a few uh sort of uh, guitar pull sessions going on or guitar circle sessions, uh song circle sessions, I believe sometimes sometimes you guys call them up there. And we're going <laughs> to um uh, you know, we're going to talk about the craft of songwriting, and each of us, uh, Gil and Jeffrey and myself, uh, have, uh, you know, different things to bring to the table that way. We'll talk about, uh, uh, really, I've done a, I've done a few of these things, and it's really more about what people want to learn, and, and I think that we have a good, a good um, qualified uh, group of writers, uh, the three of us coming up to help them, help them get that, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, so some of it will be structured, uh, some uh, in the form of workshops, and other other parts of it will be open for question and answer, and get to the heart of what people want to learn about the craft. And certainly Jeffrey's credits are are incredible. I mean, I could go on and on about him. Him and uh, and Gil, of course, has had a lot of cuts himself. So uh, we're going to cover everything from you know how to create a well-crafted song to uh, you know, generating your lyric ideas, making your songs stand out and get played, and, you know, how to collaborate. The collaboration process is so important these days because a lot of times you're writing with an artist in the room, and mm-hmm. um, you you have to, you know, it's a, you have to a lot of times work with people who don't, on a daily basis, ha- have time to write. And so, you know, it's uh, some tricks of the trade there uh, that uh, we can bring to the table and help people through the process. And, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Sounds like it, a lot of fun and very educational. Uh, for all the songwriters out there, be sure to check out byronhillmusic.com and uh, look at the tab for first annual Calabogie Peak Songwriters Workshop, uh, June 27th through the 29th. Calabogie, Ontario is near Ottawa, but you'll get all the information and get, get your tickets uh, at Byron's website. I wanted to ask you, Byron, if there is a pitch. I mean, you've, as we mentioned all the names, all the artists that have recorded your songs. It's an A to Z uh, list. Is there an artist out there right now that you've got a song that you want to pitch to, That sort of a dream pitch for you, somebody you can't wait to record one of your songs? Always. It's always <laughs> one guy. Okay. Willie Nelson. Willie nice. Nelson, please record one of my songs. <laughs> I've never had a Willie Nelson cut, and uh, you know it, that would be the dream cut for me. That's awesome! What a great answer, Willie Nelson. Uh, love his voice, of course, country legend, and that would be awesome. Do you have something in your catalog, a song or two, Byron, that has a Willie Nelson sound to it? Oh yeah, and I've pitched songs to him through the years, uh, right. you know, trying to get on on projects and. The thing about Willie is a bit of a moving target. You really know, don't know what he's going to do on the next album. It can be, you know, an album of standards, or it can be, you know, some kind of unusual stuff that he picks, or mm-hmm. thematic songs, themes, uh, some sort of theme on the album that, you know, you can't really latch on to. But I just keep sending songs and hoping someday, <laughs> some way. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 
We'll be on the listen and the lookout for a song uh, recorded by Willie Nelson from my guest, Byron Hill. That's amazing. As we wrap up here, I wanted to talk about, you had a cut by Reba, the queen of country music, certainly of modern day (laughs) country music for quite a period now. Uh, Tell me about a cut with Reba McIntyre. Well, I don't, you know, there's not a big story behind that one because it was on one of her earliest albums. But, you know, I do have some Reba, you know, a couple of Reba connected things. And I remember when she first got her, uh, when she first got her deal on Mercury, I remember Jerry Kennedy, who was producing her at the time, uh, brought me in to meet her. And she was just this, you know, rodeo girl from Oklahoma and uh, didn't really, uh, you know, seem didn't really seem like a star to me. I mean, you know, I mean, once you never know, people get into star-making machinery here and sure. you just never know who could end up being big. But she was kind of... Like a lot of uh, like a lot of new female artists coming to town, they you know she was just you know it's sort of like throwing a dart. I hope hope you know hope maybe she hits, but who knows? I'm going to give her some songs. We'll see what happens. Right. And so I remember I gave her about ten songs, and she was staying at a place here in Nashville called the Spence Manor. And I called her over there, and I I asked her if she had heard the songs yet, and she said. Yes, I've heard the song, Byron, and these ain't country enough. These just ain't country enough. And I, I remember after hearing her vocal, I, I had to, of course, she was not a star yet, so I didn't care what I said to her. I mean, I was nice to her, but I said, well, Reba, if you sing them, they'll be country, okay? You know, if you sing them, they'll be country. Because she had that, that thing, you know, that she does, which is undeniably country. She could sing, you know, uh any song and it's going to sound country. Mm-hmm. So, but that, sure. but, so that was my introduction to Reba was, was being bold enough to tell her that, but hopefully she didn't remember, but maybe she'll hear this interview. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but, right. uh, but any, I ended up writing for her many, many years later. I ended up writing for her company. I was, uh, I was signed to starstruck uh, music, which was her publishing company right. uh, for two years, for two years. And I tried to, um, you know, I tried to write stuff for her. She was looking for a Christmas project, and I, I remember during the time I was there, she she was cutting at least one album during that two-year period, and I never struck anything with her uh, other than that one early cut on her Unlimited album called Unlimited, the album, a song called Out of the Blue, which no one knows, and it's not one of my favorite songs, but it's, you know, Reba cut it. And um, and I'm proud of her, proud to have yeah. a Reba McIntyre cut. I'm ready for another one, Reba. Any any day. You know, I'm ready. Exactly. And the time yes, has come around for right. for another Reba cut. That's awesome. And the Willie Nelson on the uh, Dream cut list. Byron, this has been such a pleasure. The time has flown by. We've had a chance to chat about your great songwriting career, play some of those songs, talk about Gil Grand, of course, and your other Canadian connections. Thanks so much for being here. I'd love to have you back on again, and we'll get into some other stories behind the songs and, and some more songwriting things. Thank you very much, Dave. It was uh, man, it was a real pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you at the CCMA Awards or whenever that might be. And uh, uh, thank you. I've heard of your show for a long time, and I was on your website today looking at all the great interviews with so many of my friends. Dwayne Steele, I saw you did an interview with Dwayne. Yeah. He's a great songwriter, one of one of Canada's best songwriters. I, I just love that guy's work. And um, Anyway, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. My guest has been hit songwriter Byron Hill. Be sure to check him out at iTunes and, of course, at his website, byronhillmusic.com. I'm Dave Woods, and that'll wrap up this edition of In the Country.